Good evening. Well, one thing this government is not known for is being decisive. Quite remarkable how last Friday evening there was a double U-turn in the space of one evening on conversion therapy and on issue after issue. We've seen this government take a position and then U-turn on it. Indeed, the political website Politico estimate nearly four dozen U-turns by Boris Johnson's government. Now, that may be somewhat unkind, uh, but one thing is for certain, that when it comes to this country's response to what is happening in Ukraine, Johnson has been decisive, certainly far more decisive than any of the other Western European leaders. I mean, take, for example, Germany. Uh, they began by offering a derisory 5,000 helmets, believe it or not, to the Ukrainians. They then promise weapons, but the Ukrainians say, where are they? Hardly any have arrived. Similarly with France, President Macron talking about help, financial aid, yes, but in terms of military equipment, very difficult to see what the French have actually sent. Very different here. You know, we've sent, as of the third week of March, getting on for 4,000 of the very, very effective anti-tank weapons. Uh, we've been giving training, assistance. Johnson has taken a very, very firm stand on this. And I think, from what I can see driving around the country with Ukrainian flags flying and all the rest of it, I think perhaps the public are behind him. I was stopped this morning at a petrol station. Thank goodness it had a cash till as well. Um, and I was stopped by three bikers and they were debating. Are we doing the right thing? Are we doing enough? Should we do more? But perhaps there are some of you out there who think, well, actually, we shouldn't be involved at all. We've spent too much time in foreign wars over the last few years. My own view, well, however imperfect Ukraine may be as a country, it is a sovereign country uh, that has been invaded. And I think on this one, the government has got it about right. So tell me, do you support Boris on his actions in the Ukraine? Farage at gbnews.uk. Please send in your replies. Well, joining me to talk about the situation in Ukraine and especially given some of the horrendous stories we've heard in the last 48 hours, is Kira Rudik, an MP from Ukraine and who was in Bukha earlier on today. Kira, good evening and welcome to the programme. Hello, thank you so much for having me. No, not at all. You were in Bukha today. I saw some photographs of President Zelensky in Bukha today and we did see um, in our newspapers and on our screens today uh, pictures of bodies lying in the street. Um, it looked from the, with the, their hands tied at the back, although they'd been executed. Um, Kira, tell me, uh, were these civilians who were actively fighting against the Russians and then had reprisals taken against them? Do we know anything about the circumstances behind those really horrible pictures? So I have been to Bucha today, indeed, with uh, other parliamentary leaders. We, uh, we made a call to United Nations uh, regarding the genocide that is happening. I have seen the mass grave, 300 bodies. I never seen something like this before. They were peaceful people, mostly men, but there were women and children with their hands died behind, uh, tied behind their backs who didn't bear arms, who are sitting in their basements, just 
waiting for Russians to leave. And they were executed just because they exist. We call it genocide. I have seen destroyed houses destroyed to the ground. I have seen children who died of pneumonia because they had to sit in the basement for 39 days straight without the light of the sun. We have talked to women who were constantly raped by Russian soldiers with their children having to watch it. Women whose husbands were killed right in front of them and then they were severely raped. We have seen dead women's bodies who were raped beforehand and then they tried to burn it. We have seen people's bodies who were uh, crossed over by tanks multiple times just for fun. We have seen so many crimes that you cannot process, that you cannot forget, that you cannot understand how is it even possible. You know what was the most horrifying when we were talking to people who survived about what happened, about how it happened? about the fear and destruction that Russian troops brought, and about that they were destroying things for the sake of destroying, killing people for the sake of killing. I have seen this house that was destroyed till the end, it was burned, but the fence for some reason was still standing. And you know what was written there? We are peaceful people. They were indeed peaceful people, but it didn't help them. No, because Russians sounds, killed all of Kira. them. It sounds from what you're saying uh, like, like like a scene out of Berlin in 1945 with the Russian army invading. Um, presumably the reason that you're uncovering all of this is because the Russian troops around Kiev are in retreat. They are in retreat and we were able to get over the cities and see what happened there. And right now while we are, while we are talking with you, there are more regions, there are more cities like Bucha, where the same horrendous things are happening. There are more places where people are getting killed, and we will just yet to uncover it. And after today, after what we have seen, after what we have published, after what all the world-renowned journalists have been showing to the public, there is no Western leader who can say, oh, there are two points of view. There is no Western country that is supposed to be buying Russian gas and oil because they are paying particularly for this to happen in my country with my people, for the genocide that is happening to Ukrainians by the dollars that are paid by different countries to Russia so they can continue doing what they are doing. And yes, I, I mean, look, you know, there's, there's, there is no question, there is no question that there are European countries still buying vast amounts of Russian oil and of Russian gas. Um, and those pipelines, of course, continue to go through Ukraine. Why, don't, why doesn't Ukraine stop those pipelines from being operative? First, it is not our gas. It is European gas. If we do it, we, will, we are not better than Russia that uh, does not obey any international laws. We are a civilized country. We are European country. We will act according to the laws that are there. Okay, no, and I, take, sure I, that I take that point. I take that point and thank you for making it. And can I ask you, um, it seems to me, I mean, I don't know what your feeling is, but it seems to me that Boris Johnson has done more than any other Western leader in terms of training, military equipment and support 
uh, for your cause. Um, are you happy with what the UK have done uh, or do you feel they could do more? Indeed, the UK was and is the pioneer of uh, and is in vanguard of uh, uh, countries that are supporting Ukraine. That's true. And we are grateful for every single training, for every single start strike uh, that is uh, allowing us to fight better. And for every single humanitarian aid support that we are getting that's helping our people to survive. And finally, need, can I ask you, do, do you feel that other do. do you feel that other European countries are not giving the support that you feel that you need? Of course, if we get the support that we need, we will be able to win this war. So what is happening right now on the day 40, we are still asking for the same thing that on the day one, the jet, the air force protection. This is what we don't ask NATO forces to fight for us. We don't ask NATO pilots to come to Ukraine. We are saying we will fight themselves, but give us the weapons that we need. Create the sanctions that we need. Cut every supply that is going to Russia. Make sure that they will not have enough funds to, to continue this war. And make sure that we have enough weaponry to end this war, to win this war. You see how bravely our army fights. There is no question that uh, on the ground where we are strong, we are giving them hell. But there is still the air, there is still the skies yep. where we, we cannot oppose them. And this is why our cities are being destroyed from the air. Like I bore arms, I'm training with the Kalashnikov every single day, but there is nothing, absolutely nothing that I can do to protect myself from the missile that is coming from the air. And this is where we are asking for help. And this is where we are asking for support. This is where we are saying, leaders of the democratic world, step up. This is the time. OK, Kira Radek, I want to say thank you very much indeed uh, for that harrowing testimony. And you've made your point and your appeal very, very clear indeed. Thank you. Well, that was pretty powerful stuff. And the call for a no-fly zone... Um, of course, is what she was making there very clearly at the end. But that would embroil us ever more deeply. I wonder what Bob Seeley MP, member of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, um, and MP, of course, for the Isle of Wight, makes of that. Um, Bob, good evening. Good evening. Good evening to your viewers. Well, some fairly harrowing testimony that was given by Kira there um, about what she says has been going on in Booker and she suspects elsewhere too. Um, do you think that Boris Johnson is getting this about right? Uh, or do you think perhaps, Bob Seeley, we ought to do a little bit more? Um, I, I think we have been getting it right um, after a very slow start. And the blunt reality is that everyone was late to, it, to this, including us. Uh, a year and a half ago, the Ukrainian ambassador was asking anyone he could, why can't, we, why can't we buy weapons from countries like the United Kingdom and countries like Germany. And the two people who probably saved our honour on this is Ben Wallace and Liz Truss, who late in the day, when they had a position to do something, did the right thing. And they pushed through a tougher line against the advice of the nervous blob around them who didn't want to offend Russia. And Wallace's determination to sell the end laws 
uh, I wouldn't say saved this country's integrity, but it's made a big difference because it's been a very visible, effective means of destroying Russian armour and enabling the Ukrainians, who Kira rightly says have proved magnificent in the field, um, have, uh, has been able to counter that. The Ukrainians got some quite good kit themselves. They make, I think it's a Stugna P, um, three-mile range, uh, but it's it's much bulkier. Um, and it's more difficult to get in position. But at short range, the end law is about as good as it gets. Well, it does. Um, and along yeah. with England, it, it does uh, seem to be. It's, made, it's, it's been battle-winning kit, and we've seen a lot of that. It should be also said that the Turkish drones as well, the, the, the Ukrainians bought only two dozen, but those Turkish drones with four missiles on them as well have been, have been important in this. How, having said that, we belatedly are getting it right, but now we are chiving others, we're making a difference, and... Uh, we're trying to get the kit across. So we are doing the right thing. Yeah, 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 and certainly sure. those, those anti-tank weapons appear to be really pretty remarkable yeah. in terms of their effectiveness. Yeah. You heard the, you know, the plea um, at, from Kira Rudik at the end there uh, for us to yeah. implement a no-fly zone. Uh, what would you say to that? OK, the, the problem is with the no-fly zone, I think, look, if we could if we could take those MiGs apart and ship them across the border, I, I sort of I suspect that we probably should. But the question is, enforcing a no-find zone, then you almost give Russia and Putin, well, Putin and the Kremlin, the war that it wants, because he thinks that Ukraine is the battleground, but this is truly a war against NATO. And if we impose a no-fly zone, we give him that, and we allow him to escalate up and out. And an irradiated Ukraine, and indeed Europe, is a much worse situation than one we've got at the moment, despite the appalling pictures. However, just because we don't supply or deliver a no-fly zone, by delivering better kit, a denial kit, you could actually play a significant role in, in, uh, in preventing Russian domination of the skies. So you can argue, answer Kira's point in a way that may indeed be more effective in the long run. And like everyone, like quite a few other people, I've been sent the Ukrainian shopping list. I have it on the screen in front of me if you want to talk through it. And as soon as I got it, I sent that across to the Downing Street and I sent it to the foreign uh, to the um, assistants and the advisors in the foreign ministry and defense ministry here. And I said, have you got this list? And, and they said, yes. And it's Ben Wallace has been using that list as a basis for the, um, uh, for the NATO and yeah. nation, friendly nations meeting last Thursday. Bob Seeley, thank you very much indeed for joining us tonight here on GB News. Well, Bob Seeley thinks they're getting it about right. I mean, he is a conservative member of parliament, I grant you. Uh, what do you think? Is Boris getting this one right? Farage at gbnews.uk. In a moment, amongst other things, I will talk about a Taliban torturer. Yes, a man who has been involved directly in, in torture in Afghanistan, who is now being allowed to stay in the United Kingdom because we're still signatories to the European Court of Human Rights. I'll tell you in a moment what I think about that. I asked you, is Boris right on Ukraine? One viewer says, is he right on anything? Pensions, immigration, COVID, foreign aid, energy policies, taxation, and dare I say it passes. That wasn't the question. I agree he's got an awful lot wrong. I don't think he's much of a leader, but on this he's been decisive. Is that the right kind of decisive? Is that what Brexit Britain should be doing? David says, give the people of Ukraine whatever they reasonably want. I would even agree to letting Poland give them old fighter aircraft. That's fine, provided they've got crews that are trained 
to use them. Robert says, yes, he's going the extra mile to help Ukraine. Another says, no, no aid should be given to Ukraine at all. Give it to our own people. Well, we can give aid to our own people, but we can't give them anti-tank weapons now, can we? Bill says, I think Boris is absolutely correct in assisting Ukraine with weapons, but we should now send fighter jets. Well, there's a range of opinions there. Some do think we ought to go further. Now, this Thursday, we will finally see the government's new energy policy. There have been acres of speculation over the weekend. It began with Kwasi Kwarteng, the business secretary, telling us that there'd be a massive extension of onshore wind farms. Now, these are not popular. Indeed, Cabinet Minister Grant Shapps contradicted him by saying they're ugly. Well, they certainly are. The new emphasis, we're told, is we're going to be pushing hard for nuclear. And we're also going to push really hard for offshore wind. And apparently Boris Johnson's big idea is for a colossal floating wind farm. Yes, floating wind farm in the Irish Sea. Well, Boris Johnson's really good at this sort of thing. Remember the garden bridge to be built over the Thames, scrapped after tens of millions of pounds were wasted. Remember the idea of building a bridge across the English Channel, another bridge from Scotland across to Northern Ireland, the Boris Island Airport. He seems to come up with these grand plans. I wouldn't have thought that a giant floating wind farm in the Irish Sea would work. I'd have thought it might be quite a big danger to shipping and many other things. Either way, it does appear there's a big push for nuclear, there's a big push for more wind energy, and I just question whether any of this, whether any of this gets us out of the short-term problems that we're in. I don't think it does. And even if people are blockading oil terminals, uh, the fact is uh, that gas is something we could turn around a lot more quickly. Well, joining me once again is Malcolm Grimston, energy expert and senior research fellow at Imperial College. Malcolm, good evening. Good evening. Uh, tell me, um, a giant floating wind farm in the Irish Sea, is this another one of Boris's wild fantasies that will never come true? It, it sounds more, more ridiculous than it actually is. There is research going into a floating wind farm. The value of floating wind farms is you don't have to sink the very deep foundations into the seabed. That's both expensive and very difficult to remove when the wind farm's at the end of its life. So if there is a way of doing it uh, with surface, and if you've got a large enough flat uh, thing actually on the ocean surface, it can be quite stable. But it's certainly worth looking at. The difficulty with energy over the years has been that there are genuinely some brilliant ideas in energy. They don't all deliver. And to put all your eggs into the basket of things that are looking promising at the research stage, but we haven't demonstrated them, is something that probably needs to be avoided. Yes, Yes, I'd, I'd, I'd much rather see something that had actually been done and tested on a large scale rather than us, the taxpayer, being the guinea pig. But it does appear, doesn't it, that there is one very big shift, and that is they've decided that if we're going to be a low-carbon emitter, nuclear energy must form a huge part of our future. And interestingly, Keir Starmer appears to agree with that as well. So we might actually get an energy policy agreed by both parties. But just remind me, how long would it take from scratch, say Anglesey, which has been talked about overnight, how long would it take from scratch for a new nuclear reactor or, or a series of them to come online with usable electricity? 
I mean, at the very best at the moment, you'd be talking eight to 10 years. Uh, what we saw after the last big push for nuclear in the 1970s as a result of the oil shock was that when the world nuclear industry got into its stride, we were bringing online in the two peak years, 84 and 85, we were bringing a new nuclear station online better than once a fortnight around the world. So it took basically 10 years to gear the industry up, and then they were delivered really very rapidly. So in terms of the energy bills that we're facing now and in the next five years, new nuclear is not part of the solution. It's not there. But if we don't start at some point, then we never get to the point where it really does start to deliver. No, I take that point in terms of our overall strategy. And, uh, and this is not the Boris Johnson government fault. It's the fault of Labour and Conservative governments over the last couple of decades. Are we likely to get anything that comes out on Thursday that will help alleviate our dependence on overseas energy in the medium term? Well, what I'd like to see is, firstly, more emphasis on energy saving. Of course, one of the advantages of higher energy prices, a dreadful way to put it, uh, is that it does focus our mind on using energy far more effectively. And if that pushes people into insulation or just switching down the temperature of the, of, of the central heating or, or the air conditioning, uh, then that can deliver perhaps 10, 15% savings very, very rapidly indeed. But maybe there need to be a few incentives uh, there. There are some uh, forms of energy. You know, I'm, I'm not against more wind. I think the issue with wind is as much to do with its reliability. Uh, last Monday, a week ago at lunchtime, we were getting half a percent of our electricity from wind. Uh, today, it's been up around 40 percent. And managing that kind of difference and still balancing supply and demand is a big challenge. But uh, renewables certainly, I think, uh, can go a bit further before we start really hitting those sorts of, of, of problems. And the other thing, which I don't know whether it'll be in the strategy or not, is we do have to look at diversifying Europe's reliance on Russia for oil and gas generally. It would be very nice as well if the Germans would back off from their decision, ridiculous decision in my view, to close five perfectly good, extremely effective nuclear stations. The Belgians have already started to back away from their early nuclear plant because that of itself would uh, make a big dent in the, in the gas emissions and in the gas imports rather that Germany is expecting to incur over the next few years. I think there may, be some, there may be some German changes coming. We'll wait for Thursday, Malcolm. Meanwhile, thank you uh, for coming on here on GB News this evening. A what the Farage moment. COVID. We know 4.9 million cases in this country last week. Uh, we are, I think, to all intents and purposes, having to learn to live with it. But not in China. No, 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 no. In China, they are going on pursuing a zero COVID policy. And so Shanghai, which has within it 26 million people in that area, they are going back into lockdown. And so extreme, so extreme are some of the Chinese measures that in the Anxi district in northern China, last Wednesday, the local government ordered a complete culling of all indoor animals. That means a complete culling of all domestic pets. That is the sort of thing that is going on in China. Now, this one, really, this is a real what the Farage moment, and it's upsetting. And it is that a former Taliban torturer, yes, somebody who was engaged in torture on behalf of the Taliban back in the 1990s, 
who came to this country, claimed asylum in 2006, he was rejected. Claimed asylum in 2010, he was rejected. But he's now been told he can stay. Because even though that same Taliban are in charge in Afghanistan, if he was sent back to Afghanistan, he himself, they say, might face the risk of torture. And under Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights, that would not be allowed and was still a signatory to that. You see, Brexit only went so far. We need Brexit 2.0. In my opinion, I think when people voted Brexit, they thought that actually foreign criminals and torturers would be more easily removed from this country. Well, sadly, they're not. What the Farage, the cost of living crisis, a stamp. So back in 2010, a first-class stamp was 41p. Well, I'm afraid it's now risen to 95p. And think about that. 95p. I mean, that is prohibitive for many people. And I don't know about you, but I, I just had a birthday this weekend. And I, I kind of think that when people do buy a card, put a stamp on it, and it arrives through your front door, there's something rather nice and rather special about that. But I wonder at 95p whether or not pricing a lot of people out of that completely and utterly. Now, perhaps even more serious than that is milk. There's always been rows about milk, uh, in particular the supermarkets, in many ways squeezing, I think, dairy producers, and I think that's a fairly reasonable position to take. If you buy a pint of milk, what's it going to cost you? About 70p. You can buy larger quantities of milk cheaper in supermarkets, but there's talk of a rise of up to 50% in milk coming, and this is because of input costs, fertilisers, etc. Well, joining me to discuss just how tough this might become is Robin Betts, dairy farmer and cheesemaker in Kent. Um, good evening, and thank you for joining us here on the programme. Thank you, Nigel. So, is it right? Is it really? Can it be true that milk could rise in price by 50%? Uh, well, I'm afraid so, Nigel. It's, uh, it's, I guess, what you could say is the perfect storm within the dairy industry. Uh, during COVID, we were encouraged to reduce milk um, because of the closure of coffee shops and what have you. Uh, and now suddenly they want to turn the, turn the button back on again and for all the dairy farmers to increase more milk, um, when at the same time, uh, fertiliser costs have gone threefold through the roof. Um, and so naturally, farmers are going to reduce putting fertiliser on their ground. That's going to reduce the grass yields, uh, and consequently, the, the milk yields will come down. So, um, and with obviously the, all the energy costs increasing, uh, it's, a, it's a perfect storm, I'm afraid. It is, and of course, Winterdale cheese is, is, is your product, or what, one of your products. Um, I yep. assume there's a knock-on effect to cheese prices too. Yeah, it's an it's a interesting one because obviously milk's gone up literally in, um, in the last uh, month or so by more than 25%. Obviously, milk is the main ingredient in cheese. And so consequently, I would be seeing cheese prices um, straight away having to increase by probably around about a pound a kilo just to cover that increase in milk cost. So, um, I mean, we're very lucky that we do use some of our milk into cheese making. Um, and we've just started to try and bottle our own milk as well. So we're, we're cushioning ourselves a little bit, but even so, it's a, it's a big problem for all dairy farmers. 
Now, I know the supermarkets, Robin, have been widely criticised by your industry for driving prices to the floor and indeed forcing many um, in the dairy industry to simply pack up, to fly the white flag and say enough's enough. Can you put forward any constructive suggestion right now in terms of milk pricing and the survival of many in the dairy industry? Well, I think ultimately the, the end customer has to pay more for the milk. Um, if, if the production costs are where they are, there's nothing we can do about that. Um, and the other problem we have in the industry is that probably I think the average, I went to a meeting not that long ago, and the average age of that dairy farm in that room was probably over pensioning age. So you've got an industry with uh, clearly a very high age population of dairy farmer, and it's not encouraging younger people into the, into the industry purely because, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're not being paid the right price and it's not covering our production costs. No, Robin Betts, thank you for joining us this evening. So there's a real, thank real, you. real problem going to affect an awful lot of people. Well, there aren't many people who have successful drama shows made about them, but Manhunt was a huge ITV drama. It was based on legendary copper Colin Sutton. He's going to join me in a moment here for Talking Pints. Is talking pints, and I'm joined by Colin Sutton, retired senior investigating officer at the Met Police, who caught Levi Belfield and the night stalker Delroy Grant. But before I bring him on screen, we're going to show you a clip from ITV's very, very successful drama, Manhunt. And the whole thing was based on my guest this evening. Colin Sutton was a detective chief inspector and senior investigating officer in the Metropolitan Police. Being a leader of any team is to make sure that those below you are operating to the best of their ability. He brought elements to the investigation that I couldn't bring to it. He led the investigations into some of the most complex and high-profile cases ever, bringing dangerous criminals to justice. They were dealing with a serial rapist. The Night Stalker would strike again. That couldn't continue. I had to do everything I could to bring that to an end. The thing about Colin Sutton is he thinks outside the box. Levi Belfield was far more complex a character than just somebody who hit women on the back of the head. The odds were that he was going to attack again and it was going to be soon. Well, Colin, you couldn't get a nicer introduction than that, could you? A welcome to Talking Pints. Yes. Very good Hi. to see you here. These, uh, these people these, I guess, monsters, in a way, uh, that you've spent so much of your working life tracking down. Um, do you, I mean, I don't know, I, I, how do you, do you try and put yourself in their mind, or is that impossible with people like this? I think you do to a degree. I think, you know, I always say detective work's about people. It's about understanding people, and so it's about understanding how people think, react, what will they likely have done in that situation. And if you're chasing somebody like Belfield or, or Grant, who, who is a monster, then I guess you have to put yourself in, in that frame of mind yeah. to a degree. Must um, be quite hard to do. Yeah, it is. Um, it is to a degree, but you need to remember that aside from what they're actually doing, they're normal people. And so they... That's quite a difficult they thing. They go there sort of, as... I, yeah. I, they How go does there. one balance that out? But they go there as normal people, they leave there as normal people, they do something very abnormal in the middle. So when you're looking at trying to work out how to find out who that person is, 
you still need to kind of understand they will travel on the bus, they will use their mobile phone, they will walk past CCTV cameras, the same as you They'll and go I for a pint, I suppose. Exactly, yeah. exactly that. So, I get it. You know, so it's a kind of mixture of that. And, and in some ways, while you're doing it, you have to divorce yourself from the idea of, of the horror of what they are actually doing. Mm. Because I think that, could be, that can be counterproductive to, to, to thinking clearly and thinking straight. Did you always want to be a cop? Yeah, more or less. Um, yeah, my father was a cop. Um, uh, and uh, I, I kind of, I was a bit embarrassed about it, actually. I was a bit embarrassed to say so, I think. Um, but uh, by the time I'd got to about 14 or 15, I'd pretty much decided. But I, I went, to, went to go and read law from, from school to university and, and uh, hated being away from London and uh, applied to join the Met. So the, it was always going to be the Met for you? There was no question yeah, I'm about a that? Yeah, I'm a Londoner, so, so I joined the Met, you know. I wonder, you know, we see, I mean, they say you're getting older when the police look young, but, you know, we see police officers out there. Um, what is it? What are the characteristics of people who've qualified as police officers? What are the characteristics that mark them out as detectives? I, I think to serve as a police officer full stop in whatever role, you need to have this idea of service to your community. Yes. Um, you know, and... and, and there are lots and lots of brave young women, men and women who, who, who do that all over the country, thankfully. Uh, to be a good detective, you need to, to, to have a, a degree of understanding of human nature, uh, a bit of patience, a bit of an eye for detail, I suppose. But, you know, there's room... One of the great things about leading a, a largest team, as I did, investigating murders, is you've got all sorts of people on there. And part of the trick is finding out who's good at what. And using them to their best. Isn't that, doesn't that apply for everything in life, I think? Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, what people are good at, yeah. yeah. I lead, I, I, people have said to me, what's leadership? And I say, well, well leadership is about uh, attaining your ambition by getting the best out of the people that you lead. So a case yeah, like the Levi Belfield, Belfield case, I mean, how many people would have worked on that investigation? Uh, initially, I had a team of 70 or 80. Did you? Um, and and that's, so that's about twice the size of a a normal murder squad at the time in London. Um, and some of those fell away as, as we got through it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, th there was, it was taken very seriously, rightly so, by, by the Metropolitan yeah. Police at that time. And so I, I was given resources from, you know, places of the Met I didn't know existed sort of thing. And a case like that, a very, very, you know, clearly horrendous series of murders that mm. are taking place. What sort of... I mean, you've got human resources. Mm. But, I mean, I, I read that, you know, there was a white van that seemed to be at the centre of all mm. of this. Um, a white van that was spotted in a certain part, um, a certain part of town. And similarly, uh, with the other big case, I mean, this, this serial rapist, Delroy, I mean, I, I, unbelievable what went on there for year, over 100 victims, yes. apparently. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so if you're chasing a van, you're you know, I mean, I guess the computer has made tracking things down a bit easier, has it? It's made, yeah, I mean, the computer's made recording what you're doing and making sure that you're working efficiently easier. Uh, the big thing that, that's helped in, in, in recent years has been CCTV, has been everybody's obsession with their mobile phone and therefore leaving yeah. a trail of wherever they are, you know, and, and that's very much at the basis of, 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 of most serious investigations now. And, of course, we've had DNA in the last sort of 30 years or just under that, you know... Uh, <laughs> Gives and takes. It's it's great for proving things, but if you've got DNA with no name on the end of it, like they had in the Night Stalker case, I think it can be a hindrance. And I think there's there's been a degree of seduction of police and detectives with DNA, which has led to a bit of de-skilling. Really, if there's no DNA, then 
Okay. Do they know what to do now? You know. You see, I'm struck, Colin, by something. You know, you talk about DNA and the huge advances that that can, in the right circumstances, give. I think I'm right in saying that we are certainly in the European time zone. We are the most surveilled. We are the most photographed. Yeah whether it's walking down the street or driving on a so-called smart motorway, which appears to be you're being photographed constantly. Um, we're not any safer, are we? I think we are to a degree. Do I mean, you really? Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm firmly in the camp that if you've, if you've done nothing wrong, there's nothing to be frightened of these things about, one. Um, but I think that it enables... It enables um, scarce resources to be diverted more quickly than they would otherwise be to things that need their attention. And I think that's, you know, that's come to the fore recently since, since you know, the police have lost so many members of staff over the last sort of, uh, 10 years. Or so, so is that why they won't visit your house if you've been burgled? Uh, I think they won't visit your house within burgled because they're spread so thinly. And if, you know, look, policing takes place within the whole community and it's not just policing that's been hit with with, with lack of funding and lack of resourcing. Um, the best thing you could do to make policing proper policing, as some people might see it, would be to put more money into mental health services. But so much time of the response policing is taken up dealing with people in mental health crisis and there is nobody else. And because people who do the job in the police service care, they won't just say it's nothing to do with us, they will try and help. Uh, but, you know, you're waiting at home because, God forbid, your house has been burgled or your car's mm. been burgled mm. into. And the officers that would come and do that are sitting at a hospital waiting for somebody to assess someone who's had a mental health crisis. So the police still care, is that what you're saying? Because many, many out there think the police don't care anymore. Mm. Oh, they do. I, I, they, they do. And there's nothing these, these brave young women would like to do more than to police and do the job that they think they signed on for. So you can reassure me that Wayne Cousins is the exception, the oh, rare, um, rare exception. Yeah, he's a very he's a very rare exception. Um, and yet, following that, mm. you know, with what we saw on Clapham Common mm. and some of the narrative in certain parts of the press, mm. it was almost being put. You know, we've also had WhatsApp conversations yes. going on at you know Charing Cross and other stations, mm. which were ah, extreme laddishness is one way you can put it. Um, no, they, they, worse they were than worse that, than that. Yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah, uh, but but. But isn't there, I mean, when you're working mm. in a job that's dangerous, mm. in a job that at times you must go home and think, you know, I mean, this is just, I mean, this is so horrible what I'm doing. Yeah. Is it not possible that people, ex people display black humour of the most extraordinary kind in a way that soldiers perhaps do sometimes? I'm not excusing it, but I'm saying no. that all of these things have given an image. No, that's, I mean... You're right about black humour. There is a, yeah. there is a, a vast difference between black humour yeah. and what Wayne Cousins was up to, what oh, the officers sure. at Charing Cross were up to on their WhatsApp group, you know. Yeah. Um, and every single decent police officer, and there are thousands of them, yeah. pays the price for people like that who do things that are unacceptable. And there's no doubt they're unacceptable. And, you know, we're seeing now in the news reports more and more police officers who have been caught doing misogynistic yeah. sexual assault. You know, it's, it's virtually a daily yeah. thing. What I would say about that is we know they're there. The fact that it's getting into the newspaper shows 
that there is a will to tackle it and make sure that they are booted out. Okay, now that's a fair point. Now that is a fair point. That is a fair point. Would you join the police force today, Carl? In a heartbeat. Would you? Yes. <laughs> you really would. So you've loved your career. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's, there are too many people in this world that have to spend 30 or 40 years doing a job they don't like. Yeah, yeah. And I got up virtually every day for 30 years looking forward to going to work. So what made you good at it? I was lucky. I had That I, is delightfully uh, modest. I, had, <laughs> I like that. No, I was lucky enough to be with very good people, both in uniform and as a detective, and have teams that responded to the way I wanted to work and, and we achieved things. So Martin Clunes mm. was picked to play DCI Sutton in Manhunt. Mm. And and this of course was about both of these very high profile cases. Yeah. What happened? Did ITV come to you and say, we're going to, you know, we've decided to make you a star? Uh, no, no, not at all. Um, I was doing some work for, for, for the, there's a screenwriter who's a wonderfully gifted chap called Ed Whitmore, and, and Ed was writing something else that never got made in the end, but he came to me through a friend of a friend to help him make that authentic. We became friends. He knew I was writing a book. I'd started writing a book, and he insisted on reading what I'd written. He read and said, you've got to carry on with it, you've got to carry on with it. And somehow from that, he managed to, you know, I got a phone call from Buffalo, who the production company that made yep. it, saying, we'd like to talk to you about optioning your book you haven't written yet. And it was all done completely the wrong way yeah. around. And I realised I've been so fortunate with that because people who want to do things like that slave for years so tell me, to get it done. is Martin Clunes a good Colin Sutton? I think he's brilliant, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, in fact, I think he's, he's even better in the second season because he was a bit more light-hearted and, and I'm actually quite a light-hearted chap, I think. And, and, uh, but, yeah, he was, he was superb. What, 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 what really struck me was the, the skill that he had. He spent, I don't know, four or five, maximum of eight hours with me before he went in and did that. Mm -hmm. And I've got my family saying, Oh, he's got the way you speak. He's got your mannerisms. Yeah. He's got, you know. So that's that's that skill. That's a talented actor. So, he really is. DCI Sutton, you've been immortalised. <laughs> well, yeah. You've left your mark on the world. That must feel quite good. Uh, yeah. There, there's 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 a there's a phrase in the police saying we did some good, and I'm happy that we did some good. I think you did. Thank you for joining me on Talking Pants. Been a pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. Right, it's Barrage the Farage, but, as you know, although I haven't actually briefed Colin yet on this, so, Colin, we have these questions sent in, and we always get questions to the guests, so here we go. Okay. Sharon asks, is Colin working on another drama about him? Is uh, it going to be a, a full series now about No, there's... Um, I'm working on lots of things that are mostly documentaries at the moment. Uh, there is still a chance we may be able to do a third drama we are talking there's about. There's still a chance, Sharon, you see, but we see how modest he is. It, it seems to me it's probably going to happen. <laughs> Mary asks, will Putin ever face trial for war crimes? Well, people did back in the post-1945 period, uh, so it's possible that he will. I wonder whether we don't spend... Whether, are, we, are we spending too much time talking about legal processes that will happen to Putin afterwards, rather than how this war could end quickly with some type of peace settlement, is what I would say. Here we are, the police questions are flowing in. David asks, can the Met Police ever recover after a disastrous few years? And a quick thought on Cressida Dick, Colin, perhaps. 
Well, the answer to the question is yes, it can with the proper leadership uh, and, and with leadership going down back on the streets, back on the front line where it should be, not behind a desk. That's how you lead people. Yeah. Uh, Cresta is a lovely lady who I'm happy to say was, was, was a friend or very supportive of me when I worked with her. Yes. Uh, she was dealt a very unfortunate hand. She's had the worst things to cope with of any commissioner ever. Funny, nearly everyone I've spoken to in the police force does say good things about Cresta de Dick, even if the newspapers don't. Yeah. Andrew asks, crumpets, croissants or full English? Oh, it's full English for me. What do you think? I mean, honestly, there was a lovely cartoon in the Telegraph years ago, a Mac cartoon, and it was a chap arriving at the front door with a blazer, military moustache. He said, I've been sent home for the, for the, from the UKIP conference for ordering a continental breakfast. Croissants can be great. What is it for you, Colin? Oh, full English. When full English, got yeah. to be, knew it would be. Trevor asks... Can the Conservatives win the next election if the rise in energy costs doesn't abate any time soon? Well, you know, what we have learnt, of course, is that politics can turn around very, very quickly. Boris Johnson was a goner 50 days ago. Suddenly, his position looks a lot more secure. Remember, the Conservatives have a big advantage. You know, to win the last election by 80 was a big, big majority. But, uh, you know, Labour look a lot less scary than they looked last time. Fraser asks... Do you think angling is on borrowed time? Well, I hope not, because I was out fishing yesterday evening. 